Hello and welcome to the 111th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves of the show, and this really focuses on the developer themselves, and the second half will discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Riptide GP Renegade by Vector Unit. Matt, who are you yes. and what do you do? Hi, Chris. Um, so my name is Matt Small. I'm one of the co-founders of Vector Unit, and I'm also sort of in my daily role, the uh, CEO and creative director. Right. So that's, that's, that's quite a broad broad uh, pair of soldiers you've got on there to, to guide a game like that, whether it's Riptide or any other. Is that how you made your start? Have you always been in the, the helm of creative uh, endeavor? Um, no, not always. I, um, I started off, uh, actually, I came in from the art side of things. So I started off doing animation and 3D modeling and texturing um, and sort of worked my way up to being a lead artist and, and kind of progressed into doing more management stuff from there. Okay, so what did you really first start off with? I, mean, I love hearing these stories where I have some people say, I made my first game when I was six. <laughs> So what, what was your source start, your, your um, sort of like embryonic stage, and how did, how did we get from embryonic Matt to current day Matt? Okay, well, so embryonic Matt was, uh, when, I was when I was a kid, like in junior high, we got, you know, an Apple II, and so I got really into programming and doing, you know, very sort of simple sprite-based graphics on that. And, um, and I started off doing sort of more from the programming side of things, but I always did art on the side and um and then in in college i didn't really pursue the programming part of it i decided to kind of go more down like the creative sort of uh, i was an english major in college so i went down more of the creative path so i had always done i'd always played video games and i'd always kind of made little video game projects growing up but um but after college i got into doing graphic design and um, and from there, I got a job. My first job sort of in the industry was a company called uh, Berkeley Systems, which made the Flying Toaster screensavers, if you remember those. Yes. 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 <laughs> so I didn't actually make the Flying Toasters, but I did work on a number of screensavers there as an animator, um, like on the Star Trek The Next Generation screensaver and the Disney screensaver. Um, yeah, speaking of, I mean, I remember years yeah. and years ago, Windows had the default one with the pipes. Right. And then the pipes, every now and again, there'll be a teapot. Like, Wah! Right. <laughs> there's a joint, it's suddenly like, oh no, it's not, it's not a regular joint, it's a teapot. Uh, yeah, and Screensavers was like a weird business, because Berkeley Systems, for the for the years that I was there, was this huge company. I mean, they were getting these giant licenses, like the Simpsons, I worked on the Simpsons Screensaver, and, uh, you know, Disney, and Star Trek, and... And and they were such a phenomenon. And then at a certain point, I think people kind of, maybe with new monitors and stuff, people sort of realized, oh, we don't actually need screensavers. And um, and so basically they stopped. Although they did, they transitioned for a little bit. And that was kind of my first real game job was they started making video games with um, a couple of, the first You Don't Know Jack games. Um, they partnered with Jelly Vision and uh, and made You Don't Know Jack and a few different spin-offs of that. And so I worked on those games a little bit on the side before I left and um, 
and uh, started contracting, but I ended up, my first real game job, what I consider my first game job, was at a company called Stormfront Studios here in California. Stormfront Stormfront was founded, actually it was, at, at the time, or for a while, it was one of the longest surviving independent game development studios. Um, it had been around for 14 years or something, and it was founded by a guy named Don Daglow, who was one of the original people at Intellivision. Oh, and uh, he was sort of, he made a name for himself um, as the producer, I think, <clears throat> of the, um, like, the gold box, uh, like, D&D games. Um, like, uh, yeah, like, the, I mean, the, the computer games. And so, like, um, the original, I think it was Pool of Radiance. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, they were great. I still got copies of those somewhere. I'm yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, those, yeah, those games were awesome. And um, and so he kind of parlayed that into his first, into his company, um, Stormfront, which which did a bunch of different kinds of things when I was there. But I started off, my first game was, um, was a racing game, Hot Wheels Turbo Racing, it was called, for the... PlayStation and the N64. And, um... It was a fascinating era to be in the middle of it. It was. It, it, and it actually... Sorry, carry on. Sorry, Matt. Go on. Oh, no, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just saying, it's just that transition from the, the Mega Drive, sorry, Genesis, you know what I mean, uh, and yeah. the SNES and the Amiga, of course, lest we forget, there was those triad of, of, of formats that were fighting amongst themselves. And then all of a sudden, like, the PlayStation arrived with this dinosaur... <laughs> it was an ironic dinosaur demo like that can't be real that's just yeah. weird rendering that's just that's smoke and mirror oh god no it's real <laughs> so wow be in the thick of that then that was awesome yeah, yeah that was fun it was fun it was it was exciting because of like you said the whole transition from um, from 2D to 3D was happening right around then and and most of the games, most of the pro- what I consider to be sort of like the main proper games that I've worked on, you know, kind of started like right around the beginning of like 3D gaming, and then ever since then. Um, but uh, but yeah, my very first game, so my first game at Stormfront was this game called Hot Wheels Turbo Racing, which was kind of exactly what it sounds like. And um, we tried to pattern the game a little bit after like San Francisco Rush or one of those kinds of games but in a Hot Wheels setting. Um, and so I did, like, car modeling and uh, and level design for that game. And I also met um, the lead program on that game was a guy named Ralph Nocell, who now is the other co-founder of Vector Unit. So we've been kind of working together ever since then, like around, uh, like, 98, 99. Um, and uh, the, the other sort of thing that happened when I was at Stormfront, the other kind of vector unit genesis sort of thing was um, we, after Hot Wheels we uh, we pitched a game to Microsoft for their new Xbox console called, um, the game was called Blood Wake um, I remember which, that Yeah? yeah. <laughs> well, all, well, projecting into the future here isn't it for you? Cause yeah. You had these really massive speed bumps. I mean they were good 20, 30 feet longer than they should, which is great. Yeah. And they were armed to the teeth. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And it was set in, like, a weird sort of, like, 
like alternate reality steampunk Asia or something. That's right. It uh, wasn't anything slightly distorted, which I liked. I was yeah. drawn to that fact that it was slightly, you know, wasn't quite right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, carry on. Yeah, the guy who there was a guy um, who was like one of the kind of creative directors from Microsoft who published that game. He was also on Crimson Skies, and so he was kind of into this idea of going back into the past and creating these alternate reality settings for for these games. Um, but that was fun. That was like our an Xbox launch title, and it was our first sort of when we were thinking about what kind of game to pitch to Microsoft. We started thinking about well, what kind of technology does like this new gaming hardware enable that we couldn't have done you know five years ago or whatever and and the idea of water and water physics was what we came up with and so that was where the whole boat combat game came idea came from um and and then years later when ralph and i started vector unit we decided well we looked around and we said there's still not very many people making water games and so that was kind of how we started to decided to stake our territory yeah, I mean, Wave Race is the most famous, of course, one mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Um, but um, if you ask a European about Wave Race, especially Wave Race 64, they will look at you with, 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 with hatred and, and sadness. Because Wave Race 64 on the PAL um, N64 was an abysmal game, because it ran about 20% slower than everywhere else. <laughs> Why is that? Oh, because of PAL. Because of PAL. So we had these big black borders, top and bottom. Wave Race is notorious as one of the worst power N64 conversions ever. And it's really, really slow. It's just like, you wouldn't recognise it. Like, is he going to go, get going? No, not really. Um, they did, you know, did, they rectified it on the GameCube, of course. But um, but I recently yeah. raised Wave Race, so I wanted to because playing Riptide, and we're going to go on to it later on, and we're going to, looks like we're about to hit it, but um, playing Riptide reminds me a lot of the same sort of feelings. And I think you were hopefully encouraging those feelings. But, uh, yeah, just the sense. And also the fact you talk about water effects. And one of the most memorable water effects games of the early era of the PlayStation was probably Tomb Raider. Um, but that was just a texture. <laughs> it, was, right. it was a clever texture, but it was nonetheless just a flat texture that was had some you know, contortions to it. But ultimately, it was just a 2D texture plastered on a 3D object, wasn't it? So yeah, uh, yeah, okay, okay. Well, that's 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 what you developed, and so Riptide has, has has appeared in various incarnations, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. I mean, the first incarnation, if you think of it that way, was um, was Bloodwake, and uh, and that was kind of our first experience with um, Ralph. Also, along with you know the other programmers on the team wrote an original game engine for that game, including, like, a level editor and stuff like that. Um, and all of that experience, like, with the water technology and the game engine and stuff definitely served us well, you know, uh, ten years later when we started Vector Unit, or eight years later. Um, but, I mean, so... And then at Stormfront, like, so I was lead artist on Bloodwake, and then I sort of, I sort of stayed on as, like, lead artist um, and art director at Stormfront... Uh, until in like 2003 or four, I went to Electronic Arts and I worked there for about four years on a few different projects, like some Lord of the Rings games and a Bond game. And I worked on Spore for a little while. And then, uh, and then in 2006 or seven, Ralph and I had always stayed in touch and we started talking about the idea of 
starting our own company because there were more and more uh, there seemed to be more and more opportunity with like downloadable games on Xbox Live Arcade and PlayStation Network. Um, and so, yeah, we just decided we were kind of at a good point in our lives. We had a little bit of money saved up and neither one of us had, you know, kids or anything like that. And so we were like, you know, let's just do it. Like, let's just quit our jobs and start working on this thing. And, uh, and so we basically, we made a demo, um, of a boat racing game, a futuristic boat racing game and pitched that around to a bunch of different publishers. Um, and eventually that got picked up by Microsoft with the suggestion that they go out with their suggestion that they go out and acquire the Hydra Thunder license to kind of put on top of the game that we had made, um, which we were totally into because Hydra Thunder is another one of those classic sort of water racing games. That Sega game, big, it's it? am I going crazy? Um, no, Midway. Midway, there you go, sorry. Yeah. My arcade knowledge gets a bit fuzzy. And but it was, um, but I think one of the best sort of home versions of Hydra Thunder was on the Sega Dreamcast. Right. Um, so that might be what you're thinking of, because that was like a pretty faithful conversion from the arcades. Because yeah, I do have, and still own a working Dreamcast. I don't know how, but it's still going. They really built yeah. the last. Not like by Saturn. Still going. Like, how are you, how are you doing that? So, okay, I'm not going to question it. Let's carry on. Carry on. Yeah, the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast was a great platform, wasn't it? Like that was one of my favorite consoles I don't know of its time. Dragged it out of the back and shot it. I still don't understand it, but there it is. We weren't there. We just we no. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so yeah, Hydra Thunder then. Is that, is that, so that happened, didn't it? Yeah, so that happened. So that was that was Vector Unit's first game. So we started Vector Unit in the in January of two thousand and eight, and we signed that deal around the same time. Or actually, no, we signed that deal about a year later in uh, the end of two thousand eight, beginning of two thousand and nine, and then Hydra Thunder. Uh, that was like a totally that was a Microsoft published game that we developed and um, and we built all of our the one sort of deal that we made with that game you know I mean traditionally developers don't get great deals from publishers especially when you're just starting out and like one I mean aside from being a good opportunity for us and a chance to make our name which was very helpful for us the one thing that we did do is we were able to carve out um, ownership of sort of all of the game engine and the source code and all of that kind of stuff so that when we finished making Hydra Thunder, we were able to take, we had a, a working game engine that we were then able to use to make, you know, subsequent games. Wow. So it's quite a heritage there going from the original Xbox, which we're now forced to call. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? I can't call it Xbox One anymore. It drives me nuts. <laughs> it drives me crazy. You and I are both stuttered. They're like, oh, we can't call it that, can we? Uh, but yeah, that, that trans- transition from that trajectory from... It's really good. And here you are now with, 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 with Tide Renegade. So it kind of leads on to my next question. I think I know the answer to it, but let's just hear it anyway. Uh, what do you think are your biggest influences as a creator? Well, um... I think for both me and Ralph, like we like to make the kinds of games. I mean, this is probably true for every developer. We like to make the kinds of games that we like to play. And both of us are really are big racing game fans. Um, I've, I've played racing games ever since you know I can remember there being racing games. And um, and so I would say, I mean, 
from a design standpoint, like the games that I really like that I have like fond memories of are the ones that like those midway games like Hydra Thunder and San Francisco Rush, the ones that were the kind of classic nineties arcade racers where they they had good physics but a little bit kind of cartoony physics in a way and um they weren't too heavy on like the simulation um and instead favored just like you know giant set pieces and over the top like jumps and shortcuts and things like that um and so those are definitely the i mean those are the kinds of games that we have been you know, inspired by and trying to make like here at Vector Unit. So you're more geared towards the arcade racer as opposed to the MotoGPs and the more yeah. I mean, that's you know, Gran and the, that kind of ill. There's nothing wrong with those. Far from it. I mean, but. yeah. I mean, I, I would say that's probably more true for me than for Ralph. I think Ralph has a foot in in each camp. Like he definitely he's a big Forza player. Right. Uh, he really enjoys Forza and. Um, and he also is like a big, just personally a big racing fan. Like he follows like MotoGP and, and F1 and and all of that stuff, and even like travels to go see races and stuff. So, um, so he's definitely into the sim and the sort of realistic so, racing side so too. Petrolhead, as we call him over here. Yes, he is definitely. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, it definitely shows in in good time because um, you, you, like you say, you want to make a game that you'd want to play as well. Otherwise, you know, and that's what inspires you—the the, the act of play, basically—and um, that's that's great. I mean, I've I've had various answers to this, and uh, everything from someone's dog to to the universe itself. But the the, <laughs> the, the desire to play something of that I would want to as well is, is yeah, perfectly valid, um, and um, yeah, excellent. So. Movie. Well, and it helps a lot also with like you know play testing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think we, um, you know, whenever we're working on a game, we we are, one of the reasons that we started Vector Unit was because we had gotten kind of tired of working on these huge teams because um, it you know especially at Electronic Arts. I mean, some of the game teams had gotten up to you know two hundred, three hundred people, and. Um, and you know we kind of remembered fondly the days of of Bloodwake and uh, and uh, some of the earlier games that we had worked on where you know the team size was more like ten people or seven people or twelve people and um, and uh, and one of the things that's nice so with Vector Unit we wanted to kind of get back to that and so we've always maintained pretty small team sizes here and one of the things that's great is. I mean, we, we play test our games all the time because we're enjoying it. You know, while we're making it, we'll be like, hey, check out this new level or check out this new white box that we made. And we'll, you know, we'll sit down and we'll play split screen and race each other and smack talk each other. And, and there's a lot of just like day-to-day refinement that happens through that process because we actually enjoy sitting down and playing the games. Yes, that is important, isn't it? It's the, the, the act of enjoyment of the medium you're actually playing. Um, I do hear some people say, and like, oh yes, I can't play games anymore because I'm just sitting there deconstructing them. Like, really? Or are you actually still <laughs> enjoying them for the sake of what they are? And you're, 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 yeah. you're, you're experiencing them in a different way. That's right for you, is it not? Yeah, and I think also like when you're on a when you're on a bigger team, <clears throat> you sometimes I mean your your plate is so full with whatever 
particular specific task or set of tasks that you have. You know, if you're like an animator, you're just animating all day long and you don't get very much time unless you really make an effort to carve it out for yourself. You don't get very much time to just kind of load up the game that you're working on and just sit there and play it and enjoy it. Um, because, you know, you've got like deadlines and you have to deliver however many animations by the end of the week. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of the things that we try to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, that playing the game, I mean, here, because we don't have our own QA team, uh, you know, or anything like that. I mean, playing the game, we are our own quality assurance. And so, you know, we have to make time to play the game and test it and try it out. That's quite surprising considering how polished it is. I'm not saying that because you're on the show. Genuinely, it is quite Thanks. a polished game. Uh, it does feel like you're, you're steering this thing to a point, but we'll talk about that later. Um, mm-hmm. So, what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Who's the, who's the one you person or company that you think they should carry on doing what they're doing? Huh, that's a good question. I mean, it's actually, uh, I mean, one developer that I love, even though they make games that are completely different from the kind of games that we make, are, um, is Double Fine. Um, like, I'll pretty much buy and play anything that they put out. And it's mostly just, I love the aesthetic, I love, like, the fact that they're willing to kind of experiment and take chances. Um, And sometimes the results are a little scattered. You know, it's not always like a perfectly polished gem, but they always do something interesting that that makes me happy when I play it. Um, So they're definitely definitely up there. And I try, even though, uh, you know, even though our games tend to be a little bit more serious or more kind of specific and they don't have particularly a lot of story, like we try to slip in what I think of as kind of double finey type humor or asides or things like that into, you know, the stories or the names that we give things or, you know, here and there where we can. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's good. There's, there's some fourth wall breaking stuff which I want to ask you about later on in, okay. on, on the show. But, uh, yeah, I did notice that. Double Fine also getting, going into a bit of publishing, I think, now, um, because they're, I think mm-hmm. they're publishing a game called Gang Beast. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know about Gang Beast. Excellent. Yeah, I haven't actually played it, but I've seen it played a lot. Like I saw it at PAX last year. Yeah. It's, <clears> it's <throat> fantastic. I've seen it. I saw it years ago because I'm British, British developer. So I remember stumbling onto it. Was at uh, Eurogamer, I think it was. And um, mm-hmm. there they were. There's people just gaggling, just laughing their heads off. I thought, and I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, it's bad fighting. <laughs> It's just yeah. <laughs> bad, bad fighting. And then someone said, yeah, it's yeah. like nerds fighting. Yeah, yeah, it is. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like nerds fighting. Just no <laughs> no balance, no timing, nothing. Just drunkard brawl. Lovely. Yeah. Stuff. But yeah, just for, for Double Fine to glom onto that and go, that's good. That's, we should, we mm-hmm. should be, but we should help with that. And yeah, exactly. It's wonderful for them to do that because it's not something they would ever make, really. Yeah, I don't think it's so. It's a bit weird for them, but uh, it was it, right. But they recognize the the value the in value it. Value in it, and that's and that's good to you to to cite them because you know uh, um, there's Broken Age and there's a whole bunch of games they've made now, and it's it, I mean, ever since they did Brutal Legend, and people have just sort of given them a lot of a lot of um, you know space to let them grow and do their thing. Um, 
granted it's held by Tim Schafer, but there's many, many, many more people there now that do many, many, many things. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that you kind of bringing up Gang Beasts reminds me is another thing that I like about Double Fine, which is they're very, like, community-oriented. You know, they're very responsive to their community, and they're very invested in, like, the indie game scene, even though they themselves... I mean, they basically... People still consider them kind of an indie studio, even though they've been around forever, and they're pretty well-established. But I think the fact... Like, they made a pretty bold decision after Brutal Legend, was it? Like, when they basically decided to kind of switch over to self-publishing. Yes, and sp- yes instead of making, like, big games, like, make, like, lots of little games. And I I don't have any, you know, insider information into how well that's worked out for them, but they're still around, so it can't have been that bad. And it's been definitely fun to watch because they've been doing all these little different kinds of projects, you know, everything from, like, the Broken Age thing to, um, you know, now, like, a new Psychonauts and, like, all these different kinds of projects that... Uh, that are really fun to, to sort of watch them work on. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's quite a thing to see. You're right, there's that transition period because it, the Brutal Legends' um, brutal birth into the realm uh, was, you know, it switched from one publisher to another. There's lots of shenanigans that happened that no one really quite knew what was going on. And then ever since then, they thought, you know what, we don't want to deal with that anymore. Let's just go our own way. And uh, to, to a greater and lesser degree, they've been pretty, pretty successful at it. But... Uh, Yes, a good good choice. Double fine, a fine developer to decide. Yes. So yes. Um, this is my last question in the first half. I know, sad face, but hey, halfway, well done, thumbs up. All right. Um, and it's 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 not particularly difficult, but it gives me a hint as to what maybe you're working on next. It doesn't, but I like to think it does. Um, what are you playing right now? Um, well, this is probably not actually going to give you any no, hint no, into no, what we're playing no, no, next, no. but um, I'm playing, I've been playing a lot of No Man's Sky the last couple of weeks, or the last, you know, since it came out um, on, on PlayStation. So that's what, uh, which is actually, I mean, Hello Games is another, so Hello Games, interestingly, was, I think it was Sean and maybe one of the other guys, like, um, uh, they were so the very first game that we did, Hydra Thunder Hurricane, um, you know, published by Microsoft, and it was it was announced and debuted at PAX East in 2010, um, and we were invited in because we were going to be an Xbox Live game, so they invited us to be part of their Xbox Live uh, booth or whatever, and um, and Hello Games was at that same PAX, but they for some reason they had. Like, for whatever reason, Microsoft had not invited them to be part of the booth, even though they had an XBLA game with Joe Danger, I think yes. it was, their yeah, first game. Um, yeah, and so so they had their own little booth, you know, over in the corner of the hall set up. But when we were, you know, walking around the hall and checking things out, like, we stopped by and we were like, hey, this game looks awesome, because, you know, it's kind of like a racing game and it's our type of thing and the art style is great. And we talked to those guys for a little while and they were super cool and they were at that point kind of like us, like a, you know, a three-person or something studio. Um, and so, anyway, so I, I, I have in the back of my head, even though we're kind of different companies, like I have sort of in the back of my head an affinity with Hello Games, and so I was really excited to see them, uh, you know, bite off this giant, massive chunk of a game that they decided to make and sort of see what they did with it. And, you know, I've tried to always kind of support their stuff by... Yeah buying it and playing it whenever it comes out. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I've been playing. Me too. 
because I... What do you I, think? Um, well, first of all, I've, I've met Sean many times. Uh, first met him at E3, I think it was. And he was showing me... He, he said... I was really impressed with, with, the, uh, with um, uh, uh, Joe Danger on the HBLA. And he said, oh, I've got this on... I've got an IS. Do you want to see it? I don't want to show it to anyone, but I kind of trust you. So do, do you want to see it? And he goes, okay. And he showed me the iOS version. It's, it was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. Flew yeah, it was great. Fall. I was going, this is fantastic. What are you worried about? Because Sean doesn't have an ego. He's <laughs> one of those yeah. people who doesn't have one. And he's like, really? Said, yeah, it's amazing. Just, just no, I thought the iOS version was great. Like, it was a really solid conversion, and they didn't, you know, they came up with, like, a whole new sort of control scheme and everything, but it worked really, really well with, like, the device. And So, when I heard they were doing this, I was like, okay, and I was immediately on board. I thought, yeah, this is, this is, this is what the world kind of needs. I, mean, I can't believe they're making this, and there's only 12 of them or something. It's such a small team. And what I'm loving it because I'm old again, so I know where this is inspired from. Um, sandbox games have been around for a very, very long time, a lot longer than people are willing to admit. Um, so this, you know, No Man's Sky is, is based on, inspired by games like Elite and the Mercenary right. and Midwinter and stuff like this. These are games from the 80s. Um, and they were, with Mercenary especially, this reminds me a lot of, you know, with, you're, you're on a planet in, in that game. This is from the 80s, by the way. So you, and this, the game really did exist on these old 8-bit computers and stuff. You're on a planet, and you, you have the only thing you have your wits about you and some tools, and you're required to leave said planet by any means necessary that was available to you, given to you on this planet. And... When I was, you know, when he crash landed in No Man's Sky, I immediately went regressed back to that that time when I was yeah. playing those games. Like, oh, I just got to gather stuff and explore and understand, and it doesn't spoon feed you. It treats the player with it credits the player with some intellect. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. drag them around by the nose. It just says, well, you know, just go over there and see what happens. What's the worst that can happen? Get killed? Get eaten? What? You know. And it's just, yeah. in my first world, and I haven't sort of rebooted, I haven't restarted, I've kept on going. My, my world that I, stand, that, that, that I started in, uh, which I've named, of course I did. Um, I won't say what it is. <laughs> I might do, but not now. It's not rude or anything, it's just, you know, it's my world. Uh, and right. uh, it's actually named after a character, my main character in World of Warcraft, when I used to play it. I thought, you know, it's a nice little link. Uh, I'm like that. And, uh, and I, I named it after that. And then I... Um, it, it, it was a poison planet, so there's lots of things trying to poison me, so I kept on having to um, prevent or boost my poison resistance uh, as I was marching around this planet gathering various um, stuff, just getting stuff to make more stuff with stuff and stuff. It's just and yeah. it's all for a means to an end to see more and explore more. And I'm a big, big explorer of video game, uh, of video game worlds, and that's why well, my, my favorite, one of my favourite games to this day is still Elite. Um, so, what right. you, what you, I'm, uh, do you agree, or is it, would you take a different tack to No Man's Sky? Yeah, I know I do agree. I mean, I um, I think when I first started playing it, I, I mean, I've always thought I saw uh, um, Grant's talk at GDC last year about like the procedural, like you know, world generation and the art direction and stuff, which I thought was like 
one of the best GDC talks I've ever seen. And, uh, and so that really, and so, I mean, like, you know, from a technical standpoint, it's like almost unparalleled, right? I mean, it's amazing. And, um, and, uh, and when I first started playing it, I was, I, I felt a little bit of the frustration that some of the naysayers have talked about where it kind of seems like it's basically just all about like resource collection. Um, but then I kind of just stopped, you know, I stopped being like super goal oriented about it and just started kind of enjoying, like, like you were saying, just enjoying the sandbox and like, you know, playing around and experimenting with, uh, you know, different kinds of like crafting and just kind of exploring and giving myself time to just kind of relax and just have fun with it and dip in and out of it. And, and now I'm loving it. Like, in the beginning, I was a little bit like, oh, I just kind of want to make progress and see what happens next. And then I realized that I was kind of missing all of the, you know, the fun of just like hanging out on a planet for a while and kind of getting to know it and getting to recognize the different species that are there <clears throat> and sort of how they act. And and uh, and actually, like right around the, one of the turning points for me was I was on this planet where... <clears throat> I was actually kind of getting ready to leave, and then I thought, you know what? No, I'm just gonna just gonna hang out here for a while. And after I had been on the planet for a while, I found these like these things. They look kind of like um, uh, like the alien eggs in you know the movies. And uh, and when you opened them up, they had these uh, like those pearls. I forget what they're called, the albunium yeah, pearls or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And. Uh, and if I had just left the planet, I would have just never given those eggs a second look, really, and, noted, and or even known that you could open them. But the fact that I was kind of dinking around and, like, discovered those, and then all of a sudden I opened those eggs and I had this, like, treasure inside, which also, as soon as you start collecting them, like, the sentinels get all over you. So then I had this, like, fun kind of combat experience. Um, and and then, all you know, that just opened up, like, a whole new thing because I was able to get a bunch of money and then upgrade my spaceship and, like, all of this stuff happened basically just because I took time and just kind of relaxed and had fun on a planet that I was on. So, um, anyway, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm totally enjoying yeah. it is the long way around. Yeah, just, I get frustrated with the reviews because, you know, they, they, they played it for X amount of hours or 10 hours or whatever long. And then they go, Oh, it's so repetitive. Like you didn't play it for long enough, did you? And that's my, that's my gut reaction. It sounds weird to say like you're not really getting it. And it's just, but that's fine. That's your prerogative. But you're, you're a reviewer, and that's fine. It's your opinion, but my yeah. opinion, I don't agree with it because it's there's way more to this than you're giving it credit. And I think yeah, sorry, and, yeah. yeah. Well, I was gonna say like I think also people like over all of the year of like build up and stuff like that, like people projected a lot into what they thought the game was gonna be like. And I don't think that Hello Games ever really said that it was going to be anything other than basically exactly what it is, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, people thought it was going to be this and that and GTA in space or whatever they expected. And it's not that, you know, it's basically just what they said it is. It's a game of like exploration and discovery and, you know, making the tools that you need for more exploration and discovery. And uh, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I immediately started playing it. Oh, it's mercenary. And I understood what that meant. I, then I went into that headspace and went, I'm okay with this. I remember play, playing all those three games endlessly. So, yeah, great job. Thanks, Sean and team. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, that's the end of the first half. Let's move on to the second half where we go delve deep into Riptide
All right. So, Matt, Zero. Yes. Familiar with his work. Um, basically, tell us about Riptide. What is it? Um, okay, so Riptide, uh, Riptide GP is a futuristic racing game where, for whatever reason, the world is somewhat flooded and people have decided that that would be a fun thing to race on. And so um, it's basically a futuristic jet ski racing game um, where there's a stunting mechanic worked into it. So when you go off, every racetrack is peppered with opportunities to to jump and when you uh, jump up in the air you can pull off different kinds of stunts and tricks which you give you boost and so the the sort of uh, risk reward loop in the game is built around the idea of pulling off you know wanting to pull off bigger stunts to get more boost but then bigger stunts you might not have enough time to land them and if you don't land them you'll crash and slow down so um, so you're always trying to kind of weigh, like, what's the biggest stunt that I can pull off here to get the most boost in order to, to pull forward faster. Um, and it's not really a dystopian future, I would say, although this most recent version of the game pushed it a little bit more in a dystopian uh, direction. But um, it's, it's a little bit more of a, you know, uh, what I like to think of as an optimistic version of the future, where even though the world has flooded, people are still getting together and enjoying some motorsports. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was... There's that borderline, like, oh, yes, it's all corrupt and everything's collapsing. But actually, no, it's not. It's fine. <laughs> it's, 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 okay. it's not completely everything underwater. But, uh, yeah, there's, and there's some there's some fantastic wave effects in it. But I first encountered the game at PAX Prime, as it was once known, last year. At, uh, oh, yeah. I'm walking by, and there's, there we were, level six, towards the back of level six. Uh, and yes. great. all the way, all the way back. back and uh, which is a weird sort of uh, if you've ever been to PAX everyone I would recommend it highly it's great however um, before I go on about that I just want to say that it's um, it's just a weird floor because A it's a little bit difficult to get to just a little bit because you've got lots of escalators mm-hmm. and stuff that's fine but then it's like a hybrid floor you've got tabletop vendors sitting right next to video game vendors or not vendors but yeah. you know demonstrators like you know someone's trying to buy a copy of um, or an X-Wing or something and next minute they're walking over to your booth it was quite fun um, but it was had a fantastic booth from the presence of, but I was I, I almost missed an appointment because of it um, which is a good thing yeah okay. that, um, <laughs> yeah I didn't have an appointment with you guys I don't know why something happened or I just didn't have one but I was standing there and I was just completely agog with uh, a couple of things, and we're going to talk about them now, because what struck me first about Riptide is its handling. It seems to preclude the use of brakes. <laughs> Can you explain how you develop that to give a sense of, of speed without actually too much precision? Yeah, I mean, well, and there's a couple things about like the racing in, in Riptide. I mean, one is... Um, because it's on water, like one of the things that we like about all water racing games like Hydro Thunder and Wave Race and stuff like that is that there's an unpredictability to it that, you know, a racing, especially uh, like kind of more simulation-y racing, uh, like is a lot about like learning the track and learning the best line and getting really, really good at like nailing that best line. Um, and 
And that's true also for riptide, but um, because the water surface is dynamic and it's changing and there are waves and there are things also that affect the surface, like other boats leave wakes behind them and stuff. Like it's the best line on one race might not be the best line on the next race. And so you have to kind of constantly adapt to it. Um, and, uh, and I think for the racing, because, uh, because Riptide, I mean, I think this is true also of Hydro Thunder generally. I mean, because we're kind of going for more of like a, um, arcade racing approach, like, yeah, we're not really big into breaks. We're more into just, we want, we want to try to design levels that, especially if you take the corners correctly, um, you can pretty much just go full tilt with like the boost going and everything like the whole way through. Um, but you're always, especially on the, the faster levels, you're a little bit like right on the edge of control. Like if you slip up and hit a wall or something, you'll, you know, you'll wipe out. Yeah, it is pretty unforgiving that way, but not to the point where it's frustrating. I've always found that when I have stacked in, in Riptide, it's my fault. Totally my fault. You know, I just overdid it. Overcooked yeah. a, a corner. I was trying to get around someone and then saw, oh, look, there's this thing. Now it's part of, oh, there we go. <laughs> so, right. yeah, it's... <laughs> It's, 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 I just wanted to, to talk to you about it because it's just, that's the feeling of adrenaline I get when I'm skirting around the corners and stuff. It's just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. I can't uh, congratulate you enough on that, given that sense of, of speed and dynamism and also the, 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 there's some levels where there's huge waves. You almost go out to open sea. You don't, but you almost feel like you are very close to it and you right. actually end up almost surfing over these buggy things to, to get around to the next corner. Yeah, stuff beautifully rendered as well. Feels like, oh yeah, that's that's incredible. You know, that kind of thing would have been possible ten years ago. I suspect. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's, yeah, uh, I mean, the, 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 the sheer power of the machines you have available to you now. If you went back ten years ago. They would burn you as a witch, and rightly so. <laughs> yeah, <That's cool. laughs> um, I want to talk about something else now, which which struck me as I thought was ingenious. I personally believe, but. Uh, I think it's more subtle way of what you've done here is Riptide seems to have a lot of locked up features when you're going through the campaign and the career mode if you will what a better word way to describe it um, is that a way of encouraging people to unlock or understand or get trained in additional features of the game as they get to go along is that a way because that's how I've interpreted yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think for sure, like, you know, <clears throat> unlocking levels and new characters and new vehicles is a way of kind of rewarding, you know, people for playing the game and, and making progress. And it's fun to go through and play and, you know, feel like, oh, I got something new now. And it kind of keeps the experience more fresh. And then especially when it comes to the stunts, um, unlocking the stunts in the way that you do where it's there's like an experience I mean, for people who haven't played the game there's like a you know you earn experience in addition to cash um for winning races and you use the experience you experience levels up and then you get skill points and you can spend the skill points on a kind of simple um skill tree that unlocks stunts and other kinds of of uh, buffs and uh and we start off with like the very easy to you know, are relatively easy to to pull off stunts, and then as you get further and further into it, you unlock more complicated or harder to pull off stunts. 
And, uh, and that's definitely, you know, our sense was that we wanted to kind of give people a chance to master some of the simpler stunts before they get on to the harder ones. Um, and so that part is sort of like tutorially. Although one thing that we did change for Riptide, like in Riptide 2, um, you basically had to sort of unlock everything as you progress through it. And one thing that we did change in Riptide Renegade, Riptide GP Renegade, was um, for the for the career mode, you have to go through and unlock everything, um, like all the stunts and stuff. But we wanted for quick race and split screen and online multiplayer, we wanted people to be able to kind of just go in and play and have fun and not feel like, oh, I just got this game and so I can't play online because everyone else has like the best stuff that you can get and it's going to take me forever to get to the point where I can compete with them. Um, and so we did actually most of the stuff in the game except for some of the jet skis and some of, I mean, some of the hydro jets and some of the characters. Most of the, the, you know, the stunts and um, the upgrades and all that stuff are available to people right in the very beginning when they play the multiplayer that modes. Makes absolute sense. Otherwise, you know, you're going to create a, a split community and that's, that's no one wants that it just won't it just won't work but for the single player to, to, to get to train if you will and it's a great game on it with itself anyway it's really entertaining to and i just love the fact that it's not just oh look here's a new color skin for your your um, rider's outfit here's here's a new trick here's a boost right. here's a drifting thing here's a you know, it's it's great that you've done that, and it just gives you the impetus to get better and better at it. You earn more money the more races you do. Even if you lose a race or don't get quite you know successful as you'd like, you still earn money for doing the race. And then once you do that, you can put you can upgrade your your um, your vehicle to actually get get it you know get a higher speed and that sort of thing. It's it's just really it's, it's more depth here than uh, people would give it initial credit. Like oh, it's a nice sort of lightweight um, um, racer yeah from the out, from the outside looking in you could see that but honestly there's much greater depth to it uh, than meets the eye which is always the best sort of games have that you know, the more cool. you look into it the more you actually it, it's, it's really good uh, and um, cool. yeah, thank I, you I can't, can't congratulate you enough that. you can do one off little sort of quick race and of course you can because this game sort of you know draws you into that sort of thing just like the best arcade games or arcade races like for example, I'm a huge fan of the Ridge Racing games. You and I know right. they're not really racing games. <laughs> they're more like puzzles. Uh, but they're still great uh, yeah. because the racing and the, the, the lines you've got to... And I loved it on the PSP as well. And the, again, the same kind of feeling I get with this. With Riptide, I get the same with Ridge Racing. It's just like that same sense of adrenaline. That you, you're doing ridiculous things. I mean, we've, we've spoken briefly about the stunts, but the stunts are a very, very important part of the game to the point where... The only way you're going to win a race is you have to do pull off some stunts, uh, because that gives you an extraordinary speed boost that you can trigger. It doesn't happen immediately when you do a stunt. You actually have to trigger it, which is an interesting right. change. Um, but uh, that that is very important. There. And the, the stunts are great. They're not hard to do. You use both sticks, at least if you're using a controller, uh, which I think is required. On there. But uh, yeah, it's you need the two sticks to actually, you know, one sort to. To steer, but the other one it allows you to, to pull off some really crazy, really nuts stuff, especially towards the level. <laughs> yeah. But I want to ask you about something that struck me when I, again, at the PAX booth, which is great. Four player split screen. Now, 
not something you see that often back then. I mean, now, I don't see what I say back then, it's only a year ago, but things have changed quite a lot with couch play becoming, uh, uh, coming, returning with, 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 with right. Um Is that something you, that was always present in this game? And how have you found dealing with rendering four separate images, even if it is on a PS4? Or, uh, well, it was... Um... So when we did Hydra Thunder, one of our goals was to have a split-screen mode, um, partly because, you know, we had played Hydra Thunder a lot, you know, as younger people um, on, like, Dreamcast, and split-screen was a big part of that. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, we just have always enjoyed, like, split-screen racing. I mean, like you said, all of the games that we kind of enjoyed growing up in the 90s, the racing games, they all had split-screen. And... Um, and it was really well received when we did that, and I mean, we got the exact same reception when we came out with Hydra Thunder, and there was a split screen mode in it. Like, um, you know, people just across the board like came across and you know thanked us for having a racing game with split screen again, and like it seemed like that had kind of dropped off of the uh, feature list for other you know contemporary racing games. Um, and so since then, we've really just kind of had that as like that's something that we have to have in all of our games. Um, it doesn't really, you know, Riptide started off actually as a mobile series, and it obviously split screen doesn't really work on mobile, although the mobile versions of the games, when you play them on a TV, generally do support split screen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when we brought the games to console, like, for sure, we knew that we had to have split screen. And, um, and actually, one thing that's interesting, too, is, like, on the Xbox on the Xbox One, um, it supports more than just four controllers being connected simultaneously. And so you can have up to six, I think. Actually, you might be able to have up to eight, but we support up to six. So you can actually do six-player split-screen on the Xbox One. You've got a large enough screen, I guess. Which, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But that's like, you know, I mean, you think about, like, the screens. Like, we used to play four-player split-screen on, like, a you know, old regular CRT TV like four by three and now if you have like a you know 1080p just even a reasonably sized screen like 40 or inch or something like that um yeah you can totally split up the game into six screens and there's like enough resolution and detail there for you to like comfortably just sit there and play and it's a lot of fun it's great at four uh but but six that's that's crazy and yeah the ps4 does have a strange limit on Controls it has. No one understood that. There it is. Because I think the PlayStation 3 has yeah. seven or something. I can't remember. Um, so, last question. I oh, know. Good things come to an end. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I hope you found it good anyway. Um, so, the rider character. He is a character. He's a person. He's got a name. He or she, I should say, has got a name. Um, but I noticed they make gestures to the player. <laughs> And they, they do oh, yeah. things, and they are very animated. Why? How, is that a way of linking the player to them, to, to give a sense of, you know, a bond, if you will? Or is it just something you thought would be a nice quirk, a bit of fun? We, so we wanted the, the characters to have more personality in this game, and... Um, and so that was part of the idea behind like adding more new different types of characters. I think there's nine that you can get all together. Um, and, uh, and then as we kind of kept 
adding more characters, then we wanted them to be more animated, not just sit there in front of the camera at the start of the race, but kind of move around and interact with each other a little bit more. And, um, I mean, the idea behind, because I, I think what you're referring to is, like, in the starting line, sometimes, like, the characters will turn around and, you know, kind of gesture yes. behind them, yes. even though you're in the, you're in the back yeah. of the race. He knows he's being controlled by you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, uh, that wasn't actually our intention, I have to say, although I like that interpretation. Like, it uh, it kind of happened accidentally because it, originally we just had all the characters kind of doing these different animations and sort of making those gestures to each other. and But then the character in the back, which is your character, would also sometimes turn around and make gestures behind him or her. And, uh, and we thought about you know, sort of fixing it because it doesn't make sense in a way if you're if they're only gesturing to the other characters. But then we just decided that we kind of liked it. Like it's sort of up to interpretation. They could be gesturing to you. They could be. There's in the story. There's kind of an implication that there's like a an audience um, that's kind of watching. I don't know, like uh, bootleg videos of these races or something. And so they could be gesturing to people in the audience. But uh, but we felt like it just you know along with all the other animations in the game gave them a lot more personality. Yeah, I just found it funny. Like, oh yeah, I, I'm going to be rubbish at this, but hey, you know, best of luck. <laughs> I felt like a, it was like you know it, it just looked like they were looking back at the the player, and that's how I thought it was. And there's there's a lovely touch. Whether it was intentional, whether yeah. it was <laughs> no, I like that. But that's how I've I've taken it, and that's that, there it is. I'm sorry, I mean it's just. I like it. You can keep you can keep playing that way. <laughs> it's just um, you know, it's interesting. It's lovely to hear that you never thought of it that way because it's that's what happens when you. I know you've done this for so many years, but whenever you create any create anything, uh, as soon as it becomes published and finished and out well, finished, but out of the door, it no longer becomes yours. It's it's the people who are absorbing it now. Yes. Yeah, it's true. And it's it's also true, I mean, a lot of times with, um, especially with characters and, like, you know, programmed AI and, and you know, uh, NPC behaviors, like, a lot of accidental stuff that happens, people, um, like, players, uh, you know, will interpret as intentional, you know, and so you might see, like, a character, I don't know, just, you might see a character, like, cut another character off and, like, wipe the you know player character A bumps into player character B and character B like wipes out and ragdolls and the player will be like oh my god that guy just took that other guy out but it could be just a total accident of like the two yeah. of them colliding but it seems you know it adds like this sort of depth of story and and that's one of the things that's just generally awesome about playing games is that all these kind of accidental things at least if they're not you know totally broken looking like kind of contribute to this this world and your your brain kind of naturally wants to ascribe some like kind of purpose and story to everything and so so yeah all of that kind of feeds into the same the same pleasure racing games of late have got much 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 better at actually dealing with what they call AI um, they, you, know, you know what I mean it's just they used to have this mm-hmm. they used to be on a rail and they would follow around each other on this rail and this like this, you know following each other like this big snake <laughs> you know, following the, the racing yeah. line slavishly to the point where they're even ramming off the road if you go away from the racing line. But nowadays, they don't seem to do that now. There's definitely, you know, cars reacting to each other and 
yes, it is still they're still doing you know st- standard Boolean logic stuff, but it's still it's way more complex than it used to be, and it, they, they they make mistakes, they they screw up, and it's yeah, because of the the the, the you know the the ways the models that you can build into these things now can create it so that you know, all the if and and then or statements come out to a point where and they crash. <laughs> You know, and that's. Right. I'm sorry to sort of break it down like that. You probably don't want me to, but honestly, it's still that. But that's not sort of taking away the, you know, the uncanny valley stuff or the, the taking away the um, uh, suspense of disbelief. But ultimately, people just got way, 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 way better at it now. And I think, you know, uh, AI cars no longer shove people off the road because they're on the racing line and they're not. Uh, they're much more forgiving now right. because it makes them more to entertain the experience. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does, and it makes the it makes the game kind of more dynamic, and it changes as you play, and yeah, so, love that. Matt, thank you very, very much for being on the show. Yeah, thank a, you, Chris. Great chatting to you and listening to your, your stories, and uh, it's been uh, very illuminating to hear about Riptide and how it's evolved into what it is now. Just to check what it's available on, um, so it's on PlayStation Four, Steam, PC, is that right? It's Linux, PC. Uh, not Linux. It's on Steam. Uh, yeah, Steam right. PC, um, and also yes. Apple TV, and Shield Android TV, and um, and we actually just announced this week that next week the game's going to come out uh, for mobile. So it'll come out on the other Android TV platforms, and you know, iPhone, iPad, Android phones. So it's heading to Xbox One as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It is. And- Yes, the original intention was for the Xbox One slash Windows 10 version to come out at the same time as the PlayStation and right. Steam versions. Um, but we ran into a couple of snags. But the, I mean, the biggest thing with the Xbox version is as we kind of progress through development, um, it's an Xbox Live title, and it's uh, and it, it involves like it supports crossplay. So if you you know are playing it on your Xbox, you can also play it on Windows 10. And your Xbox Live gamertag will like keep your games in sync, and you unlock the same achievements, and you can play online um, with your Xbox friends. And um, and then just recently, or actually, they're still in the process of doing it. They're starting to roll out the full Xbox Play Anywhere, the XPA program, which means that you can buy it in one place, like xbox one and you'll just get it for free on windows so it's basically just one game that you can play on either platform um and so we've been working with them to be one of the first xpa titles that comes out but the technology is not quite there yet so we're hoping to have those out sometime around the end of september which should be when the whole xpa program like officially launches it's also coming for uh, for kindle and uh, fire tv apparently i'm just quoting yes Yes, but, uh, that is yes. true. Um, but I do actually, actually have Apple TV, but uh, I actually play it on PlayStation 4 because it's PlayStation 4. <laughs> it's, uh, it's yeah. Like, I think it's like on the top of the tree, performance-wise. You may disagree. I don't. Th- I think there's a lot of pal- parity between the two systems now, but um, there it is. Uh, I was. Uh, and I'm, 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 I have this strange thing whenever I demo a game, uh, I, I'll just go play the platform I demoed on. So, you know, it's like me, Batman, yeah. the original Batman. I kept on having a PlayStation 3 controller in my hand, so I just think it's a PS- PlayStation game. It's not! But <laughs> I, just think, I just think it is. Right. So, Matt, 
thank you very much um, do wish you the very very best of luck with this and your future endeavours whatever they may be and uh, you're more than welcome to come back on the show to talk about those too great yeah thank you Chris it was fun and so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory do leave us an iTunes review and you can also don't forget listen to us on stitcher.com so just go to stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there you just look up the sausage factory and you can find us that'd be great you can follow me on twitter at chris o'regan no apostrophes and uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to this show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the Stablemate podcast, should we say, of Spong.com. Bye!